0: Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. And Lord, for each and every person who has come to this church within the sound of my voice, as they've walked through doors, the door of their bedroom, the door of their home, the door of the grocery store, the door of the church. Lord, we thank you for the ultimate door, the living door. The speaking door. The door that is alive and the door that is true. The door that leads to life and forgiveness, grace and hope. The door that leads to salvation. The door that leads to safety and security. The door that leads to a superabundance of life. Lord, I pray for that person who is empty and hurt, guilty and broken. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. Lord, I pray that they would come to the door. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus claims to be the unique, the sole, the single, the solitary, the one and only, exclusive way to God. Thus far, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. He said, I am the light of life in John chapter 8. And now he reminds us again that he is the door. He says, I am the door of the sheep. And he claims to be the door of salvation. He claims to be the door of safety and security. He Claims to be the door of abundance. I know a little bit later in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, I know for the past three weeks I've been picking on Oprah Winfrey. And she won't escape picking on again this week. And, of course, one of the reasons is Oprah Winfrey can't bring herself to believe in the exclusive claims of Jesus. And in a very real sense, if ever there was a time for me to be somewhat sympathetic towards Oprah, it would be now, because before I became a Christian, way before I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I constantly stumbled under this Statement That Jesus was the only way As a matter of fact The very day that I got saved I remember having a conversation With the person who brought me To Calvary Costa Mesa To this Christian concert Because over and over again I asked him Are you going to tell me That 750 million Hindus are going to hell simply because they don't accept your Jesus. Now, you can tell how long ago that is. There's well over a billion Hindus now. He said, I don't know, man, but you'll see. I asked him the question about Islam. At that time, there were about 350 million Muslims. Now there are well over a billion Muslims. I said, Are you going to tell me that 350 million Muslims are going to go to hell because they don't believe in your Jesus? Are you going to tell me that all Hindus, all Muslims, all Jews, all atheists, all agnostics, each and every person who doesn't come to the same conclusion that you've come to? Are you going to tell me that literally millions of children born outside of this thing called Christianity? are going to be sentenced to a Christless eternity in hell simply because they don't believe the way that you believe. And tragically, the person I was speaking to wasn't intellectually, theologically, biblically prepared to answer the question. It never occurred to him that there was a common problem among all human beings, whether you are Hindu, whether you are Muslim, whether you are Jew, whether you are an atheist, agnostic, whether you are a Christian, whatever religious construct that you were born into, each and every person without exception is born in sin. And the sentence of death is on their soul. And because the universal problem is that human beings have sinned And because they are guilty before a holy and a righteous God, the single solution that Hindus, Muslims, Christians, and every other human being have is the reality that Jesus is the one and only exclusive mechanism whereby you can receive forgiveness and hope. For some odd reason, people think that salvation is like the game show, deal or no deal. Imagine, those of you who are familiar with the show, a contestant comes, he has to, he or she has to choose between 26 cases. Now, the cases are attractive, and they're held by an attractive woman. Each and every one of the women holding the, the cases is drop-dead gorgeous. And each one of the cases contains a value, and the value goes from one penny to one million dollars. And the contestant has to pick one case and then pick from the remaining cases the one with the greatest dollar value. The chances of picking the case with one million dollars is 1 in 26 or 3.8% for my mathematic friends. Now imagine the show then introduces a, a character called the banker. The banker's job is to get the contestant to make a deal... By accepting a case with lesser value. And when the contestant has the cases of greater value still available, the banker offers money. And so in a very real sense, no matter how you play the game, you're going to get something. But perhaps a better illustration is a game show that is very old, and you young people are probably way too young to remember, called Let's Make a Deal. Where you have doors Behind door number one, there's a prize. Behind door number two is a prize. Behind door number three is a, is a gag prize. A consolation prize. But do you realize there's a reason why there aren't 26 ways to heaven? Do you realize that there's a reason why there aren't three ways to heaven? There's a reason why there aren't a hundred ways to heaven, because if you had a hundred ways to heaven, you would still have a thousand ways to hell. If you had 26 ways to heaven, you would still have thousands of ways to hell. If you had three ways to heaven, you would rest assured that the vast majority of people would pick the two that were wrong. And God isn't willing to entrust something as important as forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation and friendship with him to chance. And so what my friend was unable to say to me is, there's a reason why Jesus makes the statement that he makes. It's because all human beings are lost in danger. And there's only one way to come to God on his terms. God is the one who is offended. And God is the one who has made the mechanism whereby that offense can be removed in the person of Jesus. And so in this passage, Jesus claims to not only be the only door of the sheep, but he also claims to be the only door that leads to salvation. He claims to be the only door that leads to safety and security. He claims to be the only door that leads to a super abundance of life. In the first six verses, Jesus has given an allegory. And the religious leaders have completely missed the point. And so now Jesus will let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, and make it so that it is unmistakable what he is trying to say. And in verse 7, he talks about being the single door. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now many of you, even today, probably went through several doors. The door of your bedroom, the door of the bathroom, the door out of your house, the door into King Supers, the door into Starbucks where you received life-saving liquid. You walked through the door of the church. A door is a familiar image to you. Throughout the week, many of you will go through many different doors. On any given week, I will almost certainly find myself in the federal building, and I'll go through a locked door, and then I'll go through a secured door at the FBI. I will go through a hospital door. I will go through a prison door. I will go through a grocery store door. And most doors lead with the expectation that there's going to be something on the other side of the door. We've already learned that in the ancient world of Jesus, shepherds kept their flocks in an enclosed space. And if they were in open fields, they would sometimes find themselves next to a cliff or an open ravine. They would gather the flock near a, 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 an entryway or, 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 or near a, a place of security and In ancient times, they would sometimes build a wall that would be eight or nine feet, and then they would enclose the wall, and typically the door, get this, in the ancient world, a door of a shepherd of the sheephold was probably, almost certainly, about 24 inches long. That's not a big space, is it? It's the space where the shepherd would position himself. The body of the shepherd kept the predators on the outside and the sheep on the inside. G. Campbell Morgan records an illustration from perhaps the greatest Old Testament scholar of his day, Sir George Adam Smith, who was one of the great Hebrew scholars, and he visited the Holy Land at the uh, the turn of the last century. And it it says he was one day traveling with a guide and he, he came across a shepherd and his sheep. He fell into a conversation with him. The man showed him the fold into which his sheep were led at night. It consisted of four walls with a way in. Sir George said to him, that's where you go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they are in there, They are perfectly safe. But there is no door, said Sir George. I am the door, said the shepherd. He was not a Christian man. He wasn't speaking in the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the standpoint of an Arab shepherd. Sir George looked at him and said, What do you mean by the door? Said the shepherd, When the light has gone and the sheep are inside... I lie in the open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body and wolf come in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. Each and every person listening to this particular passage would have a picture in their mind of a door made of wood or a door made of metal or a door made of cloth. But this is a physical door. This is a human door. This is a door that speaks and a door that feels and a door that reveals himself and a door that is able to communicate. Jesus is bluntly stating that through him and through him alone, the people of God have access to the person of God. Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 through him speaking of Jesus we have access to the Father the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 20 he is the new and the living way Jesus opens the door to God until Jesus men came to God at best as strangers and at worst as enemies but Jesus came to show us the way To show us what God is like. To open the door. Jesus is the entrance that makes access to God possible. And that by its very nature and its fundamental declaration means that there is no other access. Imagine that heaven is like a gigantic four-walled citadel. And you push up against the wall of the citadel and you look for an opening and you grasp for an opening and you desire an opening. But the opening is formed simply by the gates of pearl, the suffering Jesus who makes access possible. Jesus is the way into God's presence. Jesus is the way into God's acceptance. Jesus is the way into the church. Jesus is the way into heaven. Jesus is the way into eternal life. And by the way, there is no other way into His presence. There is no other way into His acceptance. There is no other way into the church. There is no other way into heaven. There is no other way into eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For through Him we have access by one Spirit to the Father. No wonder in verse 8, then Jesus says, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I want to draw particular attention to the question, who are the thieves? Who are the robbers? Jesus says, all who ever came before me. Is Jesus speaking of the godly prophets? Is he speaking of Enoch? Is he speaking of Noah? Is he speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is he speaking of Moses? Is he speaking of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel? No, he's not speaking of them. He is speaking of the false messiahs, the poachers, the predators, the false teachers, and even the religious leaders who were more interested in fleecing the flock than feeding the flock. These were the religious leaders who had closed their ears to Christ's claims, who refused the revelation of God and Jesus, who belittled and then fundamentally expelled the sheep in the earlier chapter, when the man born blind was kicked out. In contrast, Jesus offers his sheep security, nourishment, And rather than abusing the sheep for his own personal gain, as was done by the religious leaders, Jesus is willing to sacrifice himself for their good. Others have claimed to be the door. Others have claimed to have access. Others have claimed to be the portal. That word portal comes from a root Latin word meaning port, which means entryway. In Italian, the word for door is lo porto. In Spanish, la puerta. In French, the thought. Whatever it is, it's the entryway. And you know what's interesting? They claim that they're teaching. They claim that they're religion. They claim that they're good works. They claim that they're maturity. They claim that they're right philosophy. They claim that they're right psychology. They claim that they're right Philosophical worldviews will open people up into the presence of God, but Jesus calls them thieves and robbers. They're out to steal the sheep, fleece the flock, take their wool. That becomes a type and a picture of possession to take their life. That becomes a type and a picture of loyalty. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and even from strife, and some also from goodwill. But they preached Christ. But look what Jesus says, because it's very important. But the sheep did not hear them. Isn't that interesting? It bears repeating. The sheep did not hear them. The proof that Jesus is the only door and that all other false doors are the sheep themselves. The sheep don't hear the voice of the false shepherds. The sheep refuse entry in through the false doors. And so throughout time and throughout space and throughout history and throughout circumstances, people would solicit the children of God and the people of God away from God. But it's Jesus' point that the real sheep know the the shepherd's voice and have the ability to discern that voice. It is Jesus' words that say that the sheep won't listen to the voice of Joseph Smith, the founder of the LDS religion. The sheep won't hear the voice of Charles Taze Russell, who's the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses. The sheep won't hear the voice of Mary Baker Glover Eddy, who's the founder of Christian Science, which is not Christian and it's not science. I've already told you that it's like grape nuts. They're not grapes. They're not nuts. You couldn't pick a more worse thing to call yourself. It's not Christian and it's not science. Why am I picking on the LDS? Why am I picking on Jehovah's Witnesses? Why am I picking on Christian science? I'm not picking on them. There are over a billion Muslims. There are over a billion Hindus. There are over a billion so-called self-professing cultural Christians. There are atheists and there are agnostics. Each of them invite you to go through a door. Each of them, in the invitation of going through that door, invite you to expand your brain, expand your mind, expand your heart, expand your consciousness, expand your knowledge. But in the end, they offer you a door that leads to a Christless eternity. How different is that from Jesus, who in John chapter 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The declaration of Jesus is that you're going to recognize the voice of the shepherd as he calls out to you, as he extends the offer of love and hope, forgiveness and eternal life. You will hear his voice and you will respond to his voice and you will find and follow the shepherd. And Jesus is not only the door that leads to salvation. He is the one who saves the sinner from sin and hell. And look what it says in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You know what's interesting about that statement? When you find Jesus, you not only find salvation... When you find Jesus and when you come to the door, you are not only saved, but you are safe. You're safe. Particularly if you've lived in the ambivalence and the uncertainty. How do I know that this is the right choice? How do I know that Jesus is the right way? In Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. If there is no other name given under heaven whereby you can experience forgiveness of sin, redemption and reconciliation then you can dismiss those other names. In Acts chapter 15, verse 11, Peter, talking about the way of salvation, says, But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in like manner as they, or in exactly the same way. The Gentile was going to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and so is the Jew." In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes, For God did not appoint us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reoccurring testimony of the scripture is that you come to God, access to God, forgiveness of God, salvation in God. Life in God comes through Jesus. And then Jesus uses a familiar phrase to every person who was listening to him. And to every person who have ever intended to achieve that expression, he says, and will go in and out. It was a loving expression, a tender expression. It meant to come in and go out in the manner of safety and security. That means you go in free from threat of abuse, free from injury. It was meant to communicate the peaceful idea that entry into Jesus is the place of safety and security that the uncertain heart has always longed for. How do I know I'm making the right choice? When a person is able to come and go absent fear, that means that the person is safe. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 6, it says in the Old Testament, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. When Solomon became the king of Israel, he writes in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, or the writer of Kings writes concerning the statement and the prayer made by Solomon. He says, now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to go in. He is confessing the fact that a child doesn't know where the child is going Where the child is coming from. He confesses ignorance and desires information. Concerning how to go in and how to go out. And make sure that he's free from those kinds of problems. And he does so. In obedience and submission to God. William Barclay writes. Once a person discovers through Jesus Christ what God is like there's a new sense of safety there's a new sense of security it enters your life if life is known to be in the hands of a god like that then the worry and the fear disappears what kind of god is god he's the one who can secure you assure you and then release you from fear jesus is the door That not only opens to salvation, but opens to peace and security. In Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10, the prophet writes, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. The promise that God gives is that you don't have to be afraid because you have His presence. You don't have to be dismayed because you have an unfailing God. You don't have to worry about comfort. You don't have to worry about disaster and pain because there is a God who will comfort you and strengthen you and will uphold you by His righteous right hand, which is an idiomatic expression that all of the power and all of the promise that He has it he'll give it to you and so jesus says i am the door of salvation and then he says i am the door of safety and security and then he says look at this i am the door of super abundant life in verse 10 the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy i have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly Jesus comes to give life. I want you to think of the contrast just for a moment. One comes to steal. The other comes to give. One comes to kill. The other one comes to give life. One comes to tear down. The other one comes to build up. And by the way, that's what every false philosophy and man-made religion will do. Tear down rip off take away Roger Friedrichsen writes the church in every age has had to deal with those who try to crawl over the fence and take over the flock claiming to be the door in our day of anxiety and confusion we confront everything from eastern mysticism and thought control to the unification church and the Baha'i They are false prophets promising life, but in the end they bring death. The Unification Church is, of course, the, the, the church founded by the Reverend Sung Young Moon, a Korean individual who grew up in historical Christianity and abandoned it when he himself believed that he was the Messiah. In Baha'i, it's an ecumenical religion, and the the religion has a predecessor called the Bab, and the Bab is a, a, a word which means the gate or the portal or the door, and the Bab claims to be the door that comes into an ecumenical understanding where all religions have at least one thing in common, that they contain bits and pieces of truth. But what he fails to tell you is that all religions, apart from the revelation that's been given to God in Christ, have one thing in common. They'll lead you away from God. They'll lead you away from Christ. And so Jesus comes to give life. You know, it always shocks me that so many people think that Jesus came to crash the party. Oh, no. There you are. You're the Christian. You show up at the Halloween party. You show up at the Christmas party. You show at the family gathering. You're here. Everybody hide the booze. Ditch the drugs. Abandon the marijuana. Except that which is legal for medicinal purposes. You understand my point. They think that you're there. Not to be the life of the party, but to be the downer. I have heard false Bible teachers quote this verse. I have come that they might have life and that they might have life more abundantly. This means God doesn't want you to just have a Mercedes. God wants you to have a Rolls Royce. God doesn't want you to just go to the men's warehouse. God wants you to get designer Armani suits and be on TV just like me. But is that exactly what God is talking about? Is that what the word more abundantly really means? By the way, the word abundantly is the Greek word parissos. It carries with the idea of a a, a superabundance. It carries with it the idea of something that is so far beyond what is needed or is necessary that it becomes overwhelming. And so the superabundance that he's talking about can't be a superabundance of money. Money can buy things, but it can't buy peace. It can't buy joy. It can't buy forgiveness. It can't buy hope. Money can buy a house, but it can't buy a home. It can buy a bed, even a duck's bed, a sleep number bed, so that you can have quiet, control, comfort. Money can buy a bed, but it can't buy sleep. It can buy a clock, but it can't buy time. It can buy you a book, but it can't buy brains. It can buy you a position, but not respect. It can buy you medicine, but not health. It can buy you blood, but it can't buy you life. It can buy you sex, but it can't buy you love. It can buy you companionship, but not friends. It can buy food, but not an appetite. It can buy flattery, but not respect. It can buy luxury, but not culture. And you know what else it can buy? It can buy crucifix that you can hang around your neck but it can't buy you a savior it can buy you a church view but it can't buy you a place in heaven the follower of Jesus is promised a super abundant life the follower of Jesus is promised salvation. The follower of Jesus is promised safety and security. Again, William Barclay tells the story of a Roman soldier in Caesar's army who came to Caesar and begged permission to commit suicide. And when the soldier appeared before Julius Caesar, absent joy, a complete wretch in his own Gaelic wars. It's a description, wretched, dispirited, a creature with no vitality. Caesar looked at him and said, Man, were you ever really alive? What a powerful question. He comes begging to die, and he asks the question, Have you ever been alive? And this is what the Bible teaches that the person apart from Jesus has never really, never really been alive. The darkness, the emptiness, the wickedness, the loneliness. The world is filled with people who walk through doors and the doors are empty. They walk through a golden door and there's nothing there. They walk through a do- door of fame. They walk through a door of education. They walk through a door of false philosophy they walk through a door of perversion and pleasure they walk through a door of unmitigated self indulgence and when you get to the other side there's nothing there in the 1990's there was a group that had a song that became very popular the title was I wish you would step back from that ledge, my friend, and cut the ties of all the lies that you've been living in. The song is powerful. And the reason why the song is so powerful, because here is an unforgiven, broken person crying out to another unforgiven, broken person who wants to end their life. But he can't bring himself to that place where he's willing to admit that that emptiness, that brokenness, that wickedness, that he is simply bottomed out. I read about a museum in Deadwood, South Dakota, where it displays this inscription left by a beleaguered prospector. I lost my gun. I lost my horse. I'm out of food. The engines are after me. But I've got all the gold I can carry. Yeah, he was found full of arrows. Oh, good luck with that. At least he died rich. You know, life is one of those great words in the Bible. Here, the Greek word is zoe. There's two words in the Greek language for life. One is bios, which means a sort of an animal life and zoe means to have life or to live the word san is is the life force it's the idea of essence energy the power of being life is the opposite of perishing life is deliverance from condemnation life is the ability to impart friendship and relationship as a matter of fact jesus defines it in john chapter 17 verse 3 this is aonios life that never ends this is aonios zoe that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you've sent isn't that wild jesus defines life not so much in terms of living forever but of loving forever and being loved forever. The Bible makes this not just recommendation. Do you know why Jesus is the only way? Do you know why there aren't multiple ways? Because Jesus is the only self-existent door. Jesus is the only door that speaks. Jesus is the only door that can redeem you. Jesus is the only door that can forgive you. Jesus is the only door that can reconcile you. Jesus is the only door that lasts forever and lives forever and loves forever. The failed philosophies of man-made religions will perish. So when a person enters into friendship and relationship with Jesus they see Jesus and they begin to experience life for the first time no wonder the Bible says you were never ever really alive until that day that your eyes were open and your heart was open So what are the qualifications for that abundant life? Beauty? Brilliance? Energy? Intelligence? Popularity? Thank God the answer is no, or else none of us would really get to be born again. Except for a few of you who actually are pretty attractive, pretty smart, pretty energetic. Pretty intelligent, but for the rest of us, hey, all you have to be is a sheep, willing to follow the shepherd wherever he leads. Because you see, Christianity is not just a belief in rules, it's salvation and love of a ruler. Christianity is more than a quest, it's a conquest. Christianity is something more than just simple birth, it's growth, and it's something more than just a beginning, it's something that continues and then lives forever. Roy Loren points out that followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch because their lives were different. He writes, The early Christians were known because of the things they did not do. They believed in the dignity of all human life. Consequently, they wouldn't attend the amphitheater and watch people being slaughtered in order to make a Roman holiday. They believed that their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they wouldn't defile themselves with pagan immoralities. They believed in purity and decency. And so they refused to attend the Roman theaters and witness the obscene stage productions, which were so popular in their decadent society. It was because they refused to participate in these and other sins of the days that the disciples were mocked and they were derided and they were scornfully referred to as Christians. And then he writes, but the Christians were also known for what they were and for the things that they did. They lived life fully And abundantly, at regular intervals, they gathered together for worship and fellowship. They prayed for themselves. They prayed for each other. They prayed for their enemies. They obeyed the exhortations to walk in the way of love, to walk in the way of grace, to walk in the way of mercy, to walk in the way of forgiveness, to walk in the way of redemption, to walk in the way of reconciliation, to walk the way that Jesus walked. And the Christians were known for their patience and their kindness and their Gentleness, even to their enemies. The scripture teaches us that the Christian isn't like the world around her. Because you're different on the inside, you've changed on the inside. You hear a different voice. You listen to a different shepherd. And the Christian life is abundant. It's more abundant in its love. You'll notice that Jesus didn't simply love in a philanthropic way, that means a lover of mankind, but Jesus loved in a generous, sacrificial way, in an agape way. That's God's love, a love that isn't simply enough, it is more than enough. It is super abundant, and the Christian life is parousos. It's more parisos, abundant in grace. It isn't just simple grace. It isn't just simply the grace that forgives you. It isn't just simply the grace that reconciles you. It isn't just simply the grace that presents you before God. It isn't just simply the grace that keeps you before God. It's a grace that forgives you and keeps you and presents you Over and over and over again. That's why it's super abundant forgiveness. Super abundant love. Super abundant grace. And the Christian gets super abundant power. When Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, he said, You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This is that expulsive, dynamic power. It's more than just, again, changing power, life-giving power. It's super abundant power. You have abundant grace. You have abundant mercy. You have abundant power. You have abundant love. Do you know what else you have? Abundant comfort. Super abundant comfort. You know, comfort in the biblical sense of the word means to make a person strong. Did you know that? Comfort in the biblical sense of the word means to make a person strong. So it's comfort that's more than sympathy. It's more than sympathy for sorrow. It's support for life. It's the kind of support that you can provide in the middle of a tragedy, in the middle of a hardship, in the middle of a disaster, in in the middle of a disappointment, and make no mistake about it. Will the Christian experience tragedy? Will the Christian experience hardship? Will the Christian experience disaster and disappointment? Will a Christian man have his unchristian wife leave him? Will the non-Christian child abandon the faith that they were raised with? Will a Christian get a terminal disease? Can a Christian lose his or her job? Can they face rough economic times and hardship? Are there times of deprivation and sorrow? But here's the deal. There is a super abundant comfort that's available to the person Who will embrace Christ, not just super abundant love and not just super abundant comfort, but super abundant hope? You know, hope is the last citadel that has to be conquered before we go down in defeat. And since hope is the last citadel that has to be conquered before we go down in defeat, the Bible teaches that we have a bright star. We have a future. We have the promise of a real Lord. We have a promise of forgiveness and hope. We have the promise of something better. We have the promise that when the cloud breaks and the sun peeks through the darkened clouds, that there is a super abundant hope that comes in knowing that Jesus must fulfill His promise and return. Yeah, that is a hoo-hoo. This is why the Bible says whoever has this hope in his heart purifies himself. There is super abundant love, super abundant joy, super abundant comfort, super abundant hope. The world has average joy. Is it possible that the Broncos could win back-to-back Super Bowls? It happened in my lifetime. That's only average joy. There's a certain common peace. There's a certain ordinary gladness when you're drinking beer. When you're doing tequila shots There's a certain ordinary joy That comes as you try to fill Your life up In a wicked waste of time But what do you do When the guilt becomes overwhelming And the darkness becomes Profound And the future becomes so hopeless that you don't know what to do. That's when you need to know that there's a door that you can walk through. A door of salvation. A door that is safe and secure. And a door that extends extends to you not just abundance, Super abundance of everything that you'll ever need. I want you to stand. As you stand, we're going to have the worship team come up. You know, for many of you, even for Christians, You've listened to this message and you've said, I haven't really taken advantage of the super abundance of grace, the super abundance of mercy, the super abundance of forgiveness, the super abundance of faith, the super abundance of hope, the super abundance of love. But if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time to walk in faith and hope and love and comfort, it's now. Because God's going to use you to be the instrument of faith, to be the instrument of hope, to be the instrument of love, to be the instrument of comfort. Now. Now is the time for you to walk in the way that's honoring and pleasing to God. If you've never walked through the door of salvation, you can walk through that door right now. If you've never walked through the door and experienced safety and security, but you live in constant fear, and if you as a Christian have walked through the door, but for whatever reason, you're not experiencing the super abundance that I'm talking about you can and here's what I would even be so bold as to say you must you must because you can't afford to be wrong about your salvation and you can't afford to be wrong about your future and you can't afford to be anything other than what God has called you to be I suspect in the next few weeks quite literally the whole world might be different. And it's going to require a different Christian. The Christian who actually believes that Jesus is the Lord. A Christian that actually believes when we talk about faith, hope, and love, and comfort, and there's something substantive to the Word. People can't live on empty promises anymore. They need hope, And you can give it to them. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's not walked through the door of salvation. Lord, I pray that they would walk through that door. And the door is open. And the very fact that they can hear the voice of Jesus calling. The very fact that they can hear the invitation being extended. The very fact that they can hear, I love you, I'm willing to forgive you, I am willing to reconcile you to myself, I am willing to love you forever because I live forever, and I'm willing to have a relationship with you forever because I am the self-existent God who will never die, and I will save you by grace, and I will keep you by grace, and I will sustain you by grace, and I will lead you by grace, if that's you, and if you need to know Jesus. Jesus, just slip up your hand. It's easy to do. It's that simple. I'm going to invite you to come down. We've got men and women who can pray with you. For those of you who need to open the door of salvation, the door is open. For those of you who are Christians and you are not experiencing abundant comfort, abundant hope, abundant love, abundant grace but you find yourself because you've walked through a door of bitterness you've walked through a door of resentment you've walked through a door of anger you've walked through a door of self indulgence you've walked through a door of darkness and you find yourself in a difficult situation and you need prayer you can just come on down and we will pray for you and so while we close you come on down It's that simple. Go ahead.